Last week we heard and learned from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that if you want to maximize your liberty in Christ, if you want to be as free as possible in Jesus, then you should do everything to glorify God and avoid causing offense to other people. And you're the most free, not when you do whatever you want, especially with regard to God or without regarding God or his, the impact that your actions will have on other people, but you're most free when you love God and you love others through your actions. And today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and those same principles, we're going to see them come through in this. Now, we're going to be talking about a very, very specific situation, and we're going to look for principles in this situation that continue to apply today. But as I was thinking and praying and preparing for this morning and wondering how do you apply something so specific, so culturally specific, in a different time, in a totally different culture, I think one thing that we can find in this passage that we could highlight would be this, that in our world, And this is not just our culture, but it is generally in world cultures. But in our world and in our culture, we see a spirit of rebellion. That is a rebellion against authority, against any God-given authority, against any God-created order. We see a rebellion against uh, anybody telling us what we can or cannot do, or even giving any definition to what is right or wrong. And so generally in our world, there is this spirit of rebellion, and sometimes that creeps into our thinking, even as Christians, especially if we've come out of the world or if you are still allowing there to be worldly influences in your life, it's very possible that this idea, this spirit that pervades our culture of rebellion, of resistance to anybody saying there is an order to how things should be, there is a way that we should respect God and respect others, there is decorum, there are things that are proper and improper, any suggestion of those things may come across to you as being uh, nosy, as being out of order, as being out of bounds, that you're not supposed to keep, you're not supposed to be in my business like that, aren't we free, aren't I at liberty to do what I want? And if that's your heart, I wanna encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you this morning and to touch that heart that you've hardened a bit against the Lord. Because the fact of the matter is you cannot be a Uh, uh, You cannot maintain a a closeness in your relationship with God and with Jesus and live with a spirit of rebellion because to live with Jesus requires a spirit of submission to him and of understanding that what he says is the right way. And so I want to encourage you, if you've allowed a spirit of rebellion to enter your heart, that today you would allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you that you wouldn't allow there to be uh, easy offense in your heart because the word of God says something that is countercultural. because of course it says things that are countercultural. Instead, allow the Holy Spirit to work and to alleviate that spirit of rebellion in your life. Imagine with me that you've got tickets to go to a baseball game and you arrive early to the game, you wanna watch the batting practice and so you take your seat and you get a hot dog and some other snacks and you enjoy watching the practice and as you watch 
the section around you begins to fill in and you notice that it's filling in with people who are all wearing a similar kind of hat and shirt and, and it all says VFW on it and so it's filling in and you begin to talk to the people next to you and they say, yeah, our, our VFW posts, we're taking a trip together to this baseball game to celebrate Veterans Day. And so it, the section's filling in and then the time for the game arrives and the announcer comes over the loudspeaker and says, and now please rise for the singing of the national anthem. And so everybody around you stands up, but you've got a hot dog in one hand, and you've got nachos in your lap, and you've got a soda in the other hand, and you've got your favorite baseball cap on, and it's rather inconvenient to stand up at that moment, isn't it? It's going to be difficult, and you think, well, this is just a baseball game. It's a rather casual atmosphere. There's, there's not a big deal if I stand or if I don't stand right, and so everyone around you stands, but you decide, hey, it's not that big a deal. I'm just going to sit down because people aren't dressed up when they go to baseball games. They go in and out of their seats constantly. Most of them are drinking, and so it's not that big a deal if I just remain seated right now. And of course, you're free to make that choice, aren't you? That is your right. It is your liberty to do so. But in spite of the fact that a baseball game is an exceedingly casual atmosphere, if you remain seated with your hat on while the national anthem is sung, you're communicating something, aren't you? Whether you intend to communicate it or not, you're communicating something. First, you're communicating a general disrespect for what's going on in that moment. You're communicating a disrespect for the flag, our nation, the liberties we enjoy. Moreover, you're sitting in a section filled with vets. And so you're not only communicating something general, you're also communicating something to specific individuals near you. You're communicating a disrespect for them and what they did to secure the liberty that you have to remain seated munching on your nachos while the national anthem is sung. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, the apostle Paul applies honoring God and avoiding offense to others to a particular element of a worship service like we're having this morning. And this morning's message is gonna be a little bit different and I think as we read the passage this morning you'll understand why. First, the parallels between first century culture and our culture aren't exact by any stretch of the imagination and there are a lot of cultural elements in the passage we're going to read. Second, there are several elements in this passage for which we can't determine the exact sig significance of either because we may not have enough information about the culture or we don't know the specific situations that were taking place in the Corinthian church. Also, Paul notably doesn't use as forceful language in this section as he uses in other sections. And that doesn't mean that he wasn't giving clear instruction or direction, but it is at least worth noting that he does not seem to be as forceful about the issue we're going to talk about in a moment as he has been about issues like sexual immorality in the church or eating in an idol's temple or as he will be with issues that follow like how we take the Lord's Supper. And with that, we're going to read the passage together, and then I'm going to talk a bit about some of the issues that were involved in this circumstance. And after that, we're going to talk about the parallels and applications that we may be able to draw from this passage. And I'm going to call on you to exercise thoughtful and, 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 a, and a prayerful approach to this passage in your own life. 
And this morning, we're going to read from the New American Standard Bible because I think it does a little better job preserving some of the original ambiguities in the passage so that we can wrestle with them. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord... Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. The first thing to note that is perfectly clear throughout the passage is that Paul is talking about corporate worship. That is, he's talking about something that was happening when the church was gathered together as a whole to worship the Lord and learn from his word like we're doing today. And his conclusion is also very clear. There were some women in the congregation who were scorning what was apparently a common practice both in culture and in other churches of wearing a head covering of some kind, well, we don't know exactly what kind, but of some kind, while worshiping, and Paul tells them that they should not ignore that tradition, but should continue to do it. That is, that women should wear head coverings when they were gathered for worship. That's, that much is clear that Paul is saying in the passage. So the question is not what Paul's instructions were to these women, but why? And is it still applicable today? Let's start with the second question. Is it still applicable? It is still applicable in as much as we can discern some principles from what Paul teaches, but we need to be able to separate principles from practices or methods. There are some practices in Scripture that had cultural significance then, but they do not have the same significance in our culture today or in other cultures around the world. So we no longer practice the particulars. However, those practices were meant to uphold some principle that is unchanging. So while we may not adhere to the specific practices, there may be different practices in our culture that uphold the same principle. Let me give you an example. There are instances in the New Testament when Paul instructs believers to greet one another with a holy kiss. That kind of greeting was very common, and 
a kiss could mean something very different in that culture than a kiss typically means in our American culture. There are still cultures today in which this is practiced and doesn't have any sexual overtones, but that's not a common practice in American culture. So if a man tries to greet my wife with a holy kiss, he and I are going to have a problem. We're going to have a little issue going on because that, he's communicating something because of the culture we're in that isn't I have holy intentions toward a sister in Christ, but I'm a little creepy and I have maybe some, some other intentions. And we have to be careful of that because our actions do communicate something, don't they? And the culture in which those actions are, are carried out does also communicate something as well. Now, we can still communicate warmth to one another in the body of Christ, can't we? We can still communicate affection, whether it's through a handshake or a hug or it's through a verbal exchange in which we affirm our love and affection for one another in the body of Christ. So by following a specific practice, like giving a holy kiss, you could actually be violating the intended principle because you may be offending and creating distance rather than creating warmth, right? In fact, I would argue that in our culture, most of the time, especially if it's, if it's a man and a woman, if you're giving a holy kiss, what's going to happen is not the creation of warmth and, and brotherly and sisterly affection in Christ, but tension and potential offense, and it shouldn't be done in our culture. And so this is one example where the principle applies. We should have warmth in the body of Christ, but the practice needs to be adjusted to fit how we typically communicate with one another in our culture. Culture. And I believe that that is a similar thing that's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. While we might not know all of the cultural details, it's evident from this passage that things people took for granted in that culture are not taken for granted in our culture. For instance, Paul takes for granted that a woman could bring shame on her husband by not wearing a covering on her head. Look around you for a moment this morning. Just look around a little bit. How many women are wearing head coverings this morning? And yet, probably none of us walked in and assumed, oh, she's bringing shame on her husband because she's not wearing a head. We just don't take that for granted. It is not part of what we think about in our culture because there's no cultural significance to a head covering that we attach to that like they did in this time. In our culture, no such shame is assigned. Further, consider verse 16. Paul says that the churches of God have no such practice of women worshiping with uncovered heads. The same couldn't be said in many parts of the world in the church today. In fact, it's a very, very common practice for women to worship God without a cover on their head. The opposite is true. So we need to discern what principle Paul was trying to preserve and then consider what practices may help us to preserve that principle in our worship gatherings and in our lives generally. And the overarching idea could be stated simply like this. Your manner of worship should honor God and respect others. The manner in which you worship God should honor him and respect others. And I think that there are two related ideas that are behind Paul's instructions in this passage. Preserving the proper relationship between men and women, and perhaps more particularly between husbands and wives, and then not distracting from worship by drawing undue attention to yourself. Let's talk about the issues related to the relationship between men and women first. This passage teaches 
that in order to worship God in a manner that honors him and respects others, you can dress and act in a way that preserves the distinctions between male and female. You can dress and act in a manner that preserves the distinction between men and women. And I know that this is, it's in vogue today to separate gender into a separate category from sex and then suggest that your gender can actually be at odds with your biological sex. But this is an idea that contradicts God's word. The Bible indicates throughout that there is a created order and that there are men and women and that they are distinct. Both men and women are created in the image of God, but they are different, and the Bible even says they have different roles. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about enforcing arbitrary stereotypes on men or on women. There may be a man who loves art and a woman who loves hunting. God bless them. That does not make them less a man or less a woman. Neither am I advocating attempting to keep women out of roles of influence or out of roles of leadership. We believe that God has poured out his spirit on all flesh. We believe that he has anointed and equipped women for leadership and that they can lead publicly, preach, teach, counsel, and pastor. This does not even appear to be a problem in the passage that we're looking at. Paul takes it for granted that women were rightly praying and prophesying in the worship services. Some believe that prophesying even means that they were preaching in those public worship services. Read verse five again. It says, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Immediately our, our minds are drawn to head uncovered, head shaved, what's going on? But what we should not overlook is that Paul just assumes, takes for granted, women can pray and prophesy in public worship gatherings where both men and women are present. He just assumes that that is the case. However, He did want them to maintain a cultural distinction between men and women. There is some question as to whether Paul is addressing women in general or wives specifically. I think that he addresses both in this passage, but I do believe he speaks more specifically to wives, especially in verses three to five. And the reason for this is that he uses similar language regarding heads in in 1 Corinthians 11 as he does regarding husbands and wives in Ephesians 5. For instance, look at Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Neither in 1 Corinthians 11, nor Ephesians 5, nor anywhere else in the New Testament is there any idea that all women are to be subject to all men, or that every man is the metaphorical head of every woman. So it makes sense in 1 Corinthians 11, 3 to 5, that Paul is speaking more specifically in some instances about wives and their relationships with their husbands in a public setting of worship. One issue regarding removing head coverings in Corinth was that it would communicate something incorrect about marriage. Verse 5 explains this. If a woman's literal head, her noggin, is uncovered while praying, she disgraces or brings shame to her metaphorical head, that is, to her husband, just like if a woman were to shave her head, that would bring shame to her. Now notice 
that Paul is not saying that for a woman to shave her head is sinful or wrong. He's just noting that in that culture, it was considered disgraceful for a woman to crop her hair short or shave her head. Some people have suggested that a woman who went out into public without a head covering was communicating that she was sexually available or that she was promiscuous. And it's difficult to say that with any certainty, though that could have been part of the consideration of this passage. What we can say is that there were some women in Corinth, probably some wives in particular, who thought that their freedom in Christ also meant freedom from their husbands in worship. Paul indicates that that was not good. And I want you to look at Ephesians 5, to 33 with me to get an idea of why. It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." Now, as uncomfortable as this kind of language may make us in our culture, this passage clearly teaches that wives should be subject to their husbands, not for cultural reasons, but because that's how the church relates to Christ, and they are to be an image of that. And this subjection is not coerced. It is voluntary. When you choose to enter into a Christian marriage, you voluntarily take this on yourself. Why is that the case? Because marriage, Paul says, is supposed to represent Christ and the church. In that relationship, husbands are called upon to love their wives, give themselves up for them, make sure that they nourish and cherish their wives, both physically and spiritually. That is an enormous responsibility for a husband. Imagine that you get a job as a manager of a store, and the sales at that store begin to plummet because the store is a mess and your workers aren't helpful to customers. If the owner of that store comes to you and he asks you why the store is declining, do you think he's gonna accept an excuse that, well, the workers aren't any good? Do you think he'll accept that? No, because whose job is it to make sure the workers do their job? Yours, you're the manager, right? It is your responsibility to make sure they do their work, the store is clean, it's organized, and they're helpful. As manager, you have responsibility, but you also have authority. You could fire bad employees. You could hire new employees and train them to do their jobs well. You could discipline employees who do a poor job and reward those who work hard. You have responsibility and you have authority. Now imagine that you are a manager of the same store and that you are given responsibility, but you are not given any authority. You can't hire, you can't fire, you can't discipline, you can't correct. 
All the responsibility of being blamed, none of the authority to be able to fix the problem. You can't reward hard work, you can't hire and fire. When the owner comes and sees that the store is declining and he blames you for that, is that fair? No, it's not fair, is it? It wouldn't be fair for him to blame you because he has given you no authority to be able to do it. Would you want a job where you have a lot of responsibility but no authority to fulfill that responsibility? No, that'd be a terrible job. And in the same way, God gives a tremendous responsibility to husbands to care for, to provide for their wives, physically and spiritually. Would it be right to give that level of responsibility without also giving the necessary authority to be able to carry it out? And wouldn't this kind of authority be for a wife's benefit and not for her detriment? So when the scripture says that wives should be subject to their husbands, God is calling on wives, not on husbands. The notice, it does not say husbands, make your wives submit. It doesn't say that. Instead, it's calling on wives. It says that wives should give their husbands the necessary authority and respect to be able to carry out their responsibility. And at an even deeper level, He calls both wives and husbands to participate in representing the love of Christ for the church, as Paul wrote, the mystery of marriage is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 then, Paul called on wives to maintain the symbol of how they were related to their husbands, their head coverings in that culture. In a more general sense, Paul said that all women should wear a head covering to honor the order of God's creation, the sanctity of marriage, and the distinction he made between men and women when he created them. This is what Paul's emphasis on the created order in verses eight to nine is getting at. And though we are free in Christ and we're free regarding salvation, and in salvation there is no distinction between male and female, yet God created men and women differently and for different reasons. Now at this point, maybe you're thinking, okay, I get it, there's supposed to be some distinction between men and women, but that doesn't mean women have to wear head coverings, so what does it mean? And we wanna be careful not to draw arbitrary lines, not to reinforce needless stereotypes or create heavy burdens or complicated systems for people to have to try to figure out. And I think that reflection is important here. We might ask ourselves some questions, questions like, How can I act and dress in a manner that honors Christians of the opposite sex? If you're married, you might ask, how can I act in a manner that honors my spouse according to God's design? It may be difficult to think of an example uh, right off the top of your head, so let me give you a sort of extreme example uh, of not doing this so that we might be able to learn from it and, and maybe apply some things in our lives. Imagine that the year is 1992. 1992, it's a Sunday morning, beautiful Sunday morning. You're getting ready to go to church at Bethany Assembly of God. You arrive and you're greeted by a man. And unsurprisingly, this man is wearing a nice suit and tie. It is 1992 after all, and uh, that looks good, and you're not surprised by that in the slightest. But what is surprising is what his wife is wearing, because she's wearing a matching suit and tie, the exact same one. And you notice that she seems a little belligerent about this, 
acting like she isn't aware that what she's doing is a bit odd. It's a little bit strange for them to be wearing matching suits and ties on a Sunday morning at Bethany Assembly of God in 1992. And you notice that people are a bit taken aback when they see this. They aren't quite sure what to make of it. Now, is it wrong in principle for a woman to wear a suit and tie? No. Is it indecent or revealing? Quite the contrary. Suits are not at all revealing or indecent. So why would it be surprising for her to match her husband's suit and tie? Because you don't expect a woman to be wearing a suit to church. You don't expect her to be wearing something that is clearly her husband's clothing to church on a Sunday morning, especially in 1992. You could just say that we shouldn't be judgmental, we should just, it doesn't matter, but remember, a woman in 1992 doesn't just show up to church in a suit that matches her husband's accidentally. She's obviously done this intentionally. She clearly meant to be shocking and make a statement, and because her suit matches her husband's, she may be making some kind of statement about their relationship. What has she done with her wardrobe that morning? She's distracted people, first of all, from the real reason they come to church, which is not to see her or, or hear her make a statement about her rights or her freedoms. It is to worship God, correct? Second of all, she's brought shame on her husband because she's crossing gender boundaries for no apparent reason except perhaps to assert her freedom to do so. Perhaps even this does not seem extreme in our culture, though, because things like this happen today. Aren't men and women free to dress and act in any way that they want without cultural concerns or worrying about decorum or responsibility or respectability? Isn't it just an issue of other people being judgmental? I don't think so, actually. Look at verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. You'll notice that the words a symbol of uh, are in italics on the screen, probably in your Bible as well. And usually italics in the Bible indicate that the words in italics are not in the original language but were added for the sake of clarity by the translators. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, we could read it like this, therefore the woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. The last time that Paul used the word authority was 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says this, but take care that this right, or it's the same word there translated, authority of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Does a woman have a right or authority over what she does with her own head. I think the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10 is saying, yeah, absolutely, a woman has the right or authority over what she does with her own head. But remember what we talked about last week. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 24. So just because you have the right or authority to do something doesn't mean that you ought to do something. What we should seek to do is dress and act in ways that preserve the mutuality and the distinctions between men and women. And this is perhaps more complicated now than it ever has been, and so perhaps it is more important now for the church than it ever has been. There aren't easy answers as to how we should apply this. It, it warrants discernment and prayer. You might ask yourself, 
Am I dressing or acting in a way that flaunts or ignores God's created order? Do I have attitudes that are inherently disrespectful to women or inherently disrespectful to men? Do I have an attitude of rebellion toward authority, even spiritual authority or God's authority that comes out in how I dress and act toward other people? Maybe particularly in how I act toward people of the opposite sex. If you're married, I think this calls for reflection like, am I living in submission to the legitimate authority God has given my husband? Or do I seek to honor him in our family and community? Or if you're a husband, do I love my wife like Christ loved the church? Am I leading and providing in a manner that is worthy of respect and reflects Christ? Am I actively concerned with her spiritual well-being? I think that corporately, as a church, we do a good job of this. But we want to continue to provide a place of mutual leadership for both sexes that at the same time maintains the distinctions between those sexes. So we might ask, do we welcome both masculine and feminine leadership? Do we allow women to lead as women without expecting them to exhibit more masculine traits, perhaps like confrontation? Do we allow men to lead as men without expecting them to exhibit more typically feminine traits? Finally, I think that the culture we live in warrants us clearly stating that we should not seek to intentionally blur the lines between men and women in how we dress. And I don't think this has so much to do with specific articles of clothing as it is about intention. Am I dressing in a way that both expresses the mutuality of salvation available to men and women, but also maintains the distinction God has created and designed between men and women? God created them male and female, and while in Christ we have a new liberty, that liberty does not erase our God-given sexuality. So one of the ways in which we honor God is by living as he made us and submitting to that by how we present ourselves publicly. If our external appearance is an expression of rebellion, then we must wonder if we really have hearts that are submitted to God and his authority. And we should lead with clarity on the issue of gender identity, not just in what we say, but by living in a manner that demonstrates the mutuality. What I mean by mutuality is that in the kingdom of God, both men and women are saved, they are, have opportunities to lead, they are used by God, and they are anointed by God. They are blessed with his Holy Spirit. That's what I mean by mutuality, but that at the same time maintains the distinctions or the differences that God has created between men and women in our dress and in our actions. So the first principle regarding your manner of worship is to dress and act in a manner that preserves the distinction between male and female. The second is to avoid creating distractions. And the issue of head coverings in worship was a matter of honor and shame. Our culture isn't really a culture of honor and shame. Nevertheless, one of the ways that we honor God and honor one another is by maintaining a respect for God and, and, and for one another when we come together to worship. And when it comes to church, that basically means dressing in a manner and acting in a manner that's not intended to draw attention to yourself. And this doesn't mean that you can't dress up, that you can't look nice, that you can't get ready. It does mean remembering that when you come to worship with other people, you're not the focus of worship, are you? 
People don't show up to see how you're dressed, how I'm dressed, or how anybody's dressed. We show up to honor the Lord. And that means that how we dress shouldn't create a distraction from honoring the Lord and loving one another. First, this is about honoring God. If the way you dress distracts from that, don't dress that way. And this is where the virtue of modesty comes in. Not just modesty in sexual things, but modesty in terms of not drawing undue attention to yourself or of humility in your external presentation to the world. That includes not dressing in a flirtatious or revealing manner when you come to church or anywhere else for that matter. And while you may think that dressing in a revealing or salacious fashion is feminine, it is not respectful to the differences between men and women. Rather, dressing that way seeks to abuse or manipulate those differences, not to honor them. But modest dress is not just for women, and it doesn't just apply to modesty in sexual things. When we come to worship the Lord, we shouldn't dress in a way that highlights our wealth or our social, social position either. Paul will deal with the ways that the rich were ignoring and abusing the poor in worship settings in the next section of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but this falls, I think, within this category, even in what we're talking about with our external appearance. Your dress and your decorum at church should not be intended to attract attention to your status, because here there is neither rich nor poor. We are equals before our Lord and in our worship of our Lord, and this also extends to style. Our style should not distract from worship or loving one another. Church isn't a fashion show. And I think that this is one valid critique against some contemporary churches. If a worship pastor or a preacher is dressing in an ultra-trendy fashion with ripped jeans and a V-neck t-shirt and a gold chain and a leather jacket, an expensive pair of Jordans, does that communicate, we're here to worship Jesus? Or does it communicate, I'm here to show you how cool I am, and hopefully I'll win to the Lord because of how cool I am, which is really not an effective way to win people to Jesus by being cool. I, don't, I haven't read that passage yet. Be cool and people will come to Jesus. I, I haven't read that one. And so this is a valid critique. It's not to say that we shouldn't become all things to all people in order to win some. It's not to say that we should dress in a particular style that was common in the past. It is simply to say, this isn't the focus of worship the style that we wear isn't the focus of our worship. The style that we bring with us to church, that's not the point. That's not why we're here. I'm not suggesting that we can't be fashionable, that we shouldn't be presentable, but does our dress and our demeanor communicate that our head is Christ and we're here to honor him, or does it communicate that we are enamored with ourselves and want others to be enamored with us as well? Think about modesty inside and outside our worship services. Does your manner of dress and your attitude communicate that your aim is to honor God and you want to respect others with how you dress? Or does it communicate that you are here so that others might honor you? Sadly, I've heard many Christians speak as if modesty in dress is not their problem, especially when it comes to sexual modesty. When modesty of dress is brought up in some Christian circles, women feel as if they're being controlled or blamed. And they will often respond that lust is a problem for the person lusting and has nothing to do with them. If someone else has a problem, they should just deal with that. Why should I change how I dress because someone else struggles? And in one sense, that's correct. I don't think God ever accepts the excuse that I lusted because she wasn't dressed appropriately. No, the Bible says that you're tempted when you're carried away by your own desires. 
And so this is never an excuse for men to try to be controlling or anything like that. Neither is this an excuse for you to fantasize or to have lustful thoughts or behavior. However, today's passage and others like it do seem to suggest that we have some responsibility to one another, do we not? That in our dress and actions, we aren't just dressing for ourselves, but we dress to honor God and to respect other people by how we dress. As such, we are our brother's and sister's keeper. And if we can do something to aid in their holiness, shouldn't we do it? Dressing modestly in terms of sexuality, in terms of wealth, in terms of style, is a way that we honor God and we honor one another, especially when we're gathered together for worship. Today's passage doesn't lend itself to simple one-to-one applications. Don't wear this, do wear that, that color's inappropriate, that's a great color. It's nothing, it's nothing like that. It doesn't lend itself to that. There's a lot that we don't know about the details behind why Paul felt it necessary to address this. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't some principles that we should take from this. Primarily, that our manner of worship should honor God and it should respect other people. And this is so necessary in our culture where these lines are often crossed and the lines between genders are often blurred. As the body of Christ, we have to be clear on this, not only in our words, but in our actions. And that doesn't mean creating rigid rules about what people can wear or what masculine and feminine clothing should look like. But it does mean that we should not be intentionally blurring or crossing lines that we don't have to push Uh, that we don't have to try to push the boundaries of distinctions between men and women in order to effectively recognize that they're both created in the image of God and the mutuality they share before him. Rather, we should dress and act in a way that displays our mutuality in Christ and also that God created men and women with distinction. God has redeemed us from a world that is confused about sex, as well as rebellious against God's intentions for sex and for authority. He provides mercy for our shame, and he provides grace for us so that we don't remain trapped in our sin any longer. And if you've come this morning and you are not from the church, this church, or maybe you're not from any church, You were invited, you're a guest, maybe you're watching online, it's the first time you've been a part of a service, you might think, well, this is a really, I mean, I tuned into church, they're talking about what I wear, what a weird weird turn of events or something like that, or you feel like that's intrusive or invasive. What I want to encourage you with this morning is this, that God created you for a reason, and so many times in our lives, we spend our efforts trying to get away from the purposes of God. We rebel against them. We don't want them. We wanna do it our way. We wanna think that it can, be, it can be done according to our knowledge and our wisdom and not God's. And the Bible calls that sin. Sin is rebellion against God. And it leads to all kinds of terrible consequences in our lives. It leads to a brokenness in our relationships. It can lead to shame and pain in our lives through the actions, the consequences of our actions. It also, and most importantly, leads to separation from God. But God was not content to leave you in your rebellion and in your shame. And so the scripture says this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still in our rebellion against God, 
while we were still at odds with him, while we were still struggling to try to do things our own way, to dress the way we wanted, to express ourselves the way we wanted, to live the way we wanted, to make the decisions we wanted, while we were still doing that, God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us. And Jesus died on a cross, and he died not just so that we could have this nice story about forgiveness and sacrifice and substitution. He died in your place. When he died on the cross, he took the consequence of your sin, death, being cut off from God. He took that and he bore it so that he could offer you forgiveness by faith. And today, if you've come to church and you've heard this sermon about you know, clothes and how we should dress and the differences between men and women, and husbands and wives, and, and you're, a little, you're a little concerned or confused about what that means, the most important thing for you this morning is to understand this, that God sent his son Jesus to redeem you out of the confusion and ignorance of this world so that you could walk in clarity and in a new life that is full of forgiveness and freedom in Jesus not the sin and slavery to it in which you've been living. And so today, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, what we're asking you to do is not change your clothes, all right? What we're asking you to do is not put a head covering on, take one off, wear this, wear that. That is not what we're asking you to do today. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and you know there are things in your life where you are aware that you are in rebellion against God, Maybe the circumstances of your life have led you to this morning and you, you're only here because you know you've not been living right with God and there have been too many things that you would have formally called coincidence that have happened recently that you're beginning to think this isn't coincidence. Maybe God is trying to get my attention today. If that's you, what we're asking isn't change your clothes. We're asking that you would change your mind. The Bible says this, that if you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that's a change of mind. Because if you've been living in rebellion, then you've not been saying Jesus is Lord, you've been saying, I'm Lord, I'm King, I'm Queen, I'm Master. And what the Bible says is if you will confess, if you will repent and you will confess Jesus is Lord and believe by faith in your heart, that he not only died for your sins, but that as the scripture teaches and foretold that on the third day God raised him from the dead and he is alive, then you will be saved. Not because you changed your outer appearance, but because God changes your heart. Because he washes away your sin and he makes you new, giving you a new life and a new hope in him. I'm gonna ask if you'd close your eyes for just a moment. If you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus and you wanna begin that today, you know you're living in rebellion, but today you wanna say, Jesus is Lord and I believe that God raised him from the dead. And you wanna know salvation, salvation from your life of rebellion, salvation from your shame and your sin. You wanna know freedom from your past and the things that have been plaguing your life. Listen, Jesus is true freedom. And you've been living in a world that tells you, do what you want, when you want, that's freedom. But the scripture says that he who the Son, that is he who Jesus sets free, she who Jesus sets free is really free. 
And today, if, if you're looking for that kind of freedom, it will not come because you chase your own desires a little bit further. They've enslaved you to this point. They brought you shame to this point. The, so the answer isn't, let's chase my desires just a little further. The answer is, let's change our hearts and our minds. Let's confess Jesus, and I need to receive him as Lord. If you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus today, and you want to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart today, God raised him from the dead. You want to be saved. I'm going to ask you to do something simple. This does not save you, but it is an indication of faith so that I can pray with you. If you would just lift up your hand. If that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, but today you want to begin that. If you would just lift up your hand. If you're watching online, you've joined us there, and you want to respond, you can text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061, and we'll respond to you via text. But if there's anybody here, you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, and you want to begin that this morning, would you just lift up your hand? I'm going to wait for just a moment. Is there anybody like that? You don't know the freedom of Christ. You don't know the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have the assurance of salvation in Him. Is there anybody like that? I'm going to pray, and if you've indicated online that you want to receive Christ as your Savior, or you are, you've been hesitant to lift your hand, but uh, you want to receive Christ, I'm going to encourage you, as I pray, lift your hand and make this prayer yours, and confess Jesus as your Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you that you have given your Son as a sacrifice for my sin. You know that I've been living a life of rebellion against you. I've been trying to do things that I thought would make me happy and fulfill me, but that I knew in my heart were not what I was designed for and not what you created me for. I pray that you would forgive me. I ask, Lord, that you would make me new today. I confess Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord. He is Lord. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. And I'm asking you today that by his sacrifice, you would give me new life. I pray that you would set me free from the slavery to sin of my past and that you would make me a new creation in Christ Jesus, able to live in order to honor you and love others. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, we believe. Amen. Amen. Church, I know that the 1 Corinthians 11 and head coverings is not always the easiest one-to-one -to, -one to apply in our lives. And I would encourage you that as a church, we should be setting an example in our lives for others, especially for coming generations. That we have a mutuality in Christ as men and women, and yet we also have distinctions. And that our goal is not to blur those lines because that doesn't bring freedom. What, but what brings freedom is when we live the purposes that God has created us for, and we live not trying to be outside of God's design, but we live inside in submission to what God has designed us for. And in that, there is true freedom because then we're living as Christ, in, as Christ intended, as if He is Lord and not as if we are Lord. And we need to clearly demonstrate this. And while we might not be able to say, okay, this morning, the application is uh, hymn lines need to be this long. And men need to have, you know, four shirts on when they come to church on Sunday. And, and all these specific rules that create burdens too difficult to carry. 
which I don't think is what this passage is about. The application for our lives should be, am I acting, dressing, and presenting myself in a way that honors God and points attention to Him and respects the people around me, especially respecting the difference between men and women? Let's be thoughtful and prayerful about that. And if the Holy Spirit has convicted you in any regard this morning, do not fail to obey his voice. Maybe there's something that you hadn't thought of before. This morning the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about it. Be obedient to him as he leads you to honor God and respect others. Thank you for being here this morning.